Well, good morning. Welcome to Redeemer. Uh, my name is Brian Paget. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you are new with us, then this isn't necessarily for you. If you've been around for a while and you're wondering, why does that Brian all of a sudden have a tablet up there with him while he's preaching? So one of the things I'm trying to do is be a better preacher. Um, and when I preach off the cuff, and what I mean by that is not like, I, I, probably there's a better term for that. I do prepare. It's not like I'm up here going, I'm just going to wing it today, whatever the spirit wants to do. Um, but I normally try to really hammer it, hammer it, take it in, take it in, take it in. And I was telling someone this last week that uh, for many, many years, I have been a very confident public speaker. Um, but so much so that over the last few years, that's one of the areas that God's exposed in me uh, is how little I've trusted the spirit of God to do things or whatever to, to, to preach and speak and, and to work in the power of the Spirit. And, and what I would often do sometimes is kind of just lean a little heavily on my confidence in my public speaking ability to the point that really what's happened is I've kind of lost all confidence. <laughs> and so uh, you say, oh my gosh, what is wrong with this guy? See, you are watching like real life happen, okay? Like I'm not afraid to say who I am and what I am, what I'm not, what I'm going through and everything else. I want you guys to be very clear that I'm, I'm you, okay? Like, I'm, I'm sheep too, and I'm still trying to follow Jesus, and I struggle with these things. So one of the things I've really tried to learn in this is going, Lord, how do I better communicate? And so I'm trying to be better at manuscript. I manuscript them anyway, but to actually follow what I wrote. Like, I invested time. I wrote these things out for a reason, and I think it's really good, right? So why veer off from it? Well, we'll see. Uh, so we'll see if what we've got today is really good. So if you see me like stopping and doing this, I've, I've entered a realm that's not here, just so you know. But um, when I was in college, uh, I've shared this before, but it seems very, very timely with today's message. When I was in college, uh, my freshman year, my nickname was Pharisee. Um, now, it was given in jest because of a conversation I had with some people on the way to uh, Guthrie, a youth ministry thing we were doing down there, and I had been sharing some things, and they were just like, oh my gosh, you're a Pharisee. Yeah, Pharisee, and then it just stuck. Thankfully, it was only my freshman year, but that was my freshman year, and it was an accurate name, uh, nickname in many ways, uh, and some of you know that throughout my life, I've had various nicknames, um, then you just, you just kind of, as you hear different phrases, I tell you, that was my nickname and such and such, and people love it because it's not really true, but it could be. Uh, but when, when we hear the term Pharisee today, it conjures up many thoughts, uh, and most are not good, right? Uh, usually this term describes something or someone that's very legalistic. Uh, and the Pharisees, along with other groups such as the Sadducees and F, uh, Essenes, received the harshest rebukes and criticisms from Jesus. And among these groups, there was this group called the scribes or the lawyers, uh, and don't think lawyer like you think today. These were experts in Old Testament law. So they might be more like your theologians today, your seminary professors today, than an actual lawyer that you think of today. These folks made up the leadership of the Jewish people in Jesus' day. Our, our text today is going to focus on the Pharisees and the lawyers. Now, these two groups gave Jesus the most heat of all the groups, and they were likely the most influential in Jesus' day as well. Now, before we jump in, I want to correct some of the things uh, of how we understand Pharisees and lawyers. The word Pharisee, uh, the word for it, however, is actually comes from the word meaning to separate. Uh, so they were essentially a separatist group, uh, which when they originally formed, what they were separating out from is they wanted to be a pure and holy people. They kind of came out of the Maccabean revolt. So this was a, a few hundred years before Jesus comes on the scene. 
but they separated themselves out. They wanted to be holy and set apart. They wanted to live pure lives according to the law of God. And they considered the whole Old Testament to be the law of God, where the Sadducees only saw the Torah. The rest of the Old Testament was just kind of talk. They saw the whole Old Testament as the law. But over time, they came to believe that their oral and written interpretations were also God's law. In fact, these interpretations of God's word handed down were as much the word of God, the law of God, as the Old Testament itself. And this is a really important point. The experts in the law, okay, the lawyers, um, they were the ones that would copy and recopy and keep recopying God's word. And they were very meticulous about this work. We are indebted to their work to this day when we find copies of the law of the Old Testament and everything else because they did a great job. But they also wrote commentaries. They taught the people. They gave interpretations of God's word. And they upheld and created religious traditions and practices, which they also saw as law. Pharisees and lawyers were two different groups, but many lawyers were also Pharisees. Over time, lawyers added to the law many traditions, many rules and regulations. And by the time we get to Jesus, Pharisees and lawyers were likely more devoted to the oral written traditions and interpretations of God's law than the actual law itself. It is apparent from Jesus' words with them, uh, <clears throat> from his words with them, that they were more interested uh, in the, the uh, would you say, the letter of the law, and they were not very interested in the spirit of the law at all. Meaning they were more focused on the literal wording of the law and its literal application than they were the purpose or the deeper meaning behind the law. And this is something we all get, right? Uh, we've all been given commands from parents or other authority figures that we take literally, missing the broader meaning of the command, right? Okay, so mom, dad says, hey, no ice cream until you finish your dinner. And they look over, why are you eating a cookie? You haven't finished your dinner. You never said anything about a cookie. The literal command, right, was don't have ice cream until you've eaten your dinner. I'm not eating ice cream, therefore I haven't broke the law. But the spirit of the law was no sweets, no dessert until you've completed your dinner, until you've finished your dinner, right? But literally speaking, the command was only for ice cream. And no ice cream, or no ice cream, sorry, until dinner was finished. And was the goal really to finish dinner, or was it to get ice cream? Or was it both? Think about that for a second. Was it both? Is this saying that dinner is always necessary before having ice cream? If you have ice cream before having dinner, or at another time of the day, are you breaking the command or not? I know you're probably like, dude, we get it. Like the, the spirit of the law, got it. Don't eat sweets till you've eaten your dinner. But I'm making a point here. This is what they would do. They would take the law literally and just comb over it, comb over it, comb over it, comb over it, comb over it. This is what Jesus will later call straining a gnat. Trying to figure out what exactly was it saying so that they can accurately and correctly obey it perfectly. What did it mean no ice cream until you finished your dinner. Right? They're seeking to interpret the command accurately so they can obey it perfectly. But what ends up happening is your interpretation of the command becomes equal to God's divine law. That's what they did. And thus they were justified in obeying their interpretation of the law and therefore commanding everyone else to do the same. The Pharisees missed the spirit of the law. They missed the deeper meaning and purpose of the law. The lawyers did too. And not only this, they added the traditions that were, uh, that were elevated to the same status as God's law. One of these was ceremonial cleanings uh, before eating meals. So there's no command in the Old Testament to have a ceremonial cleaning before you eat. This isn't washing your hands type stuff, by the way. So wash your hands before you eat. That's always good advice. 
uh, sound scientifically too. Um, but the ceremonial cleanings were about purification. Remember, this is a separatist group trying to be holy and set apart and pure. And so the Pharisees <clears throat> had a tradition uh, uh, had a tradition which they elevated to law status of cleaning themselves of all the impure touches they had in the community. So they would be in the marketplace among Jews, uh, sick people, those with skin diseases, etc. And remember, because they're separatists, uh, which had them, they wanted to be pure and set apart, but they would become defiled. So they would cleanse themselves before eating so that they would not be defiled, right? They didn't want to eat anything with, with filthiness. So it wasn't just washing their hands. They'd wash their face, their feet, everything else. They would not enter the homes of Gentiles and tax collectors and sinners. They were not like the Essenes, another party. Now listen, the Essenes were an interesting. They would be, think more like a monk. They didn't think the Pharisees went far enough in their separatism. They went further. They went outside and they mostly just avoided everyone. And then there were those like the Sadducees. They weren't like them either. The Pharisees weren't. This was a Jewish party made up of the more elite, wealthy, educated Jews who were Hellenistic. They, they definitely took on the Hellenistic lifestyle. And so they, were conceived, they would be seen more as your liberal progressive today. That's a fun word. The Pharisees were more blue-collar, middle to upper middle class type, and they were perhaps the most influential. The Sadducees were right there with them, but they didn't survive the temple fall in AD 70, whereas Pharisaism did. Jesus spends more time with the Pharisees and lawyers than the other two parties. And there was a fourth party that arose in the time of Jesus called the Zealots. Simon the Zealot was one of Jesus' disciples. They were the party of insurrectionists. Within their ranks, though, was this small group called the Scythari or something like that. I don't remember the, the exact how you say it or whatever. Uh, but they were a people who would carry these concealed daggers, okay? They'd have these concealed daggers and were known to randomly attack and kill Roman leaders and religious leaders. I mean, this doesn't sound like anything going on today. Simon the Zealot may have been one of these very people. We don't entirely know, but we do know he was part of the Zealot party who sought Rome's demise in Israel's reign. The Pharisees had this love-hate relationship with the Roman Empire. They wanted to be free from Rome, but they sought more of a play-along-to-get-along kind of approach. They accepted the benefits of the empire while seeking to avoid the anger of the empire. As long as Rome let them do their thing, they didn't push back. But they weren't afraid to work the system to their advantage either. And they awaited God's Messiah. They waited the king who would establish Israel's kingdom and sit on David's throne forever. In the time of the Pharisees, there were many who claimed to be God's Messiah. So when Jesus comes on the scene, this isn't unusual. This isn't unusual. Now, if the Pharisees were to believe that one was in fact the Messiah of God, that would have a far-reaching impact on the Jewish community. Same for the lawyers. If these people were, could point to a man and claim that's the Messiah of God, the Jewish nation would follow that Messiah. So when Jesus comes on the scene, they do their due diligence. They go to see if he is in fact the one. But as we learned last week, they think he's working for Satan. They do not believe he is the Messiah of God. Yet they're still intrigued by him. So much so that one of them today is going to invite him over to lunch. So let me read Luke 11, starting in verse 37 to 41. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Okay, so this Pharisee interrupts Jesus while he's speaking. I don't know what that looks like. 
I don't, I mean, maybe the Pharisee, I don't know if he just kind of had that kind of power and authority. He was like, okay, that's enough. Let's go to my house. We're getting lunch. He's like, okay, we're going to the dude's house. But he interrupts him, invites him to lunch, and Jesus went. And don't miss that. In Luke's account, Jesus is already, we already have him in the home eating a meal with the tax collectors, okay? He's also already been in the home of a Pharisee. This is his second time now in the home of a Pharisee. Why is that important? Because Jesus did not cut off the Pharisees. He didn't cut off the Pharisees. He did not treat them the way they treated others. There is a word for us all here. Who's that group that you want nothing to do with? Who's that group that you steer clear of and will never be seen with? So Jesus goes and eats at his house. And then Jesus doesn't wash before eating. Now this is the ceremonial cleaning. So if you're like, oh my gosh, he's spreading germs. Just chill out. He probably was, but (laughs) so was everybody else. They didn't have soap. I'm kidding. They probably did. I didn't dig that deep. This is a ceremonial cleaning, though. Understand the ceremonial cleaning. That wasn't in my notes. Sorry, I should have stuck to my notes. It would have been cleaning the hands, the feet, and the face. It was about purifying yourself. But Jesus doesn't do it, and likely on purpose. He knows this is what they do. He's been in their homes before. He knows them. In their minds, though, Jesus is violating the law. But there's no law about this. It's their interpretation and their added tradition that is equivalent to the law to them. So these Pharisees are astonished that Jesus didn't clean himself before lunch. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, speaks to them. He speaks on cleaning the outside of the cup and dishes, which equates to them cleaning themselves before they eat. And they do these outward actions to purify themselves. But that's all it is. It's outward purification. Inside, he says, you are full of greed and wickedness. You're going to want to pay attention to those two terms. Jesus isn't just throwing out random sins. Okay? He goes, you know what? Inside, you're full of, we'll just go with greed and wickedness today. And next week, I'll change it to something else. No, no. He's very intentional why he's saying greed and wickedness. And you'll see it come out more so. At this point, I'm thinking Jesus is not a very kind dinner guest. I don't know about you. I mean, like, he gets invited over to the Pharisee's home. He doesn't wash his hands on purpose. And they're like, I can't believe you didn't wash your hands. He's like, you know what? You're full of greed and wickedness, you dirty fool. What kind of a house guest is this? Now, that's how we read it in the English and in our social media world, because that's the way we communicate with each other. So we've been trained to see this and be like, oh, Jesus is owning the conservatives. He's not. And everything in me wants to be like, yeah, get him, Jesus. But Jesus isn't attacking the Pharisees and lawyers. He's not there to pick a fight with them. His mission with them is the same as it is with the tax collectors. He's come preaching the gospel of the kingdom and calling people to repentance. Jesus is getting to the heart with them and exposing their insides, and this is for their good. But will they see it? He's not putting them in their place. He's not owning the conservatives nor, or any of those things. He's shining the light in the darkness like he talked about in the verses previous to this. The question for them and for you and I is, do we love the darkness and fear the light and what it reveals? None of us here today will want to own that we may very well be just like the Pharisees and lawyers. But we have no problem pointing to others who are. And interestingly enough, they happen to be nothing like us, right? Jesus is responding to their astonishment. So this isn't coming out of nowhere. And he addresses what's going on on the inside. They're full of greed and wickedness. When you hear the word greed, don't just think money. Greed here is the word greediness. Meaning they're greedy for all kinds of things. Money, power, social position, things like that. Wickedness is better defined as depravity, which means at their core they are immoral bad people. This doesn't mean they cannot do anything good or decent. 
but that their very nature is corrupt. Okay, we can all relate to this, um, right? This is what we believe. Like the, we're, you know, I would hold to that we're totally depraved. That doesn't mean utterly. Utterly means you can't do anything. Totally means we're corrupt. Our core nature is corrupt. It doesn't mean we can't do good, even think good or whatever, but that we're corrupt and we're, we're condemned because of our sin and our, our rebellion against God. He's saying the same thing here. But why is this important? Because these Pharisees are considered righteous, pure, and holy. And why are they? Because they follow the laws and their traditions. Outwardly, they are righteous, but it's all a facade. And they're missing who Jesus is because of their self-righteousness. They cannot understand Jesus' signs and miracles and message because they are blinded by their own holiness and righteousness. And this terrifies me. As one who's been discipled into a type of Pharisaism through the churches and ministries that I've grown up within, I ask myself, how often have I missed Jesus because of my own self-holiness and self-righteousness? How about you? Inside these Pharisees and lawyers are full of greed and wickedness, but they don't see it. That's why he says, you fools. Now, if you hear you fools and your mind goes to Matthew 5 where Jesus says, I thought if he said you call someone a fool, you're in danger of the hell, uh, fire of hell. How does Jesus get to say you fools? Well, first of all, those are two different words. They're not the same word. And that's a big deal in its own right. But the second one is this. The word here being different, he's also not dehumanizing them and insulting them, which is what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 5. It's a dehumanizing and an insulting of the person Jesus is not saying you fools in a dehumanizing, insulting way. Rather, he's stating the facts of their foolishness to not realize that God who created the outside has also created the inside. And both matter. Both the inside and the outside of a person matter. The whole person matters to God, not just the soul and not just the body. So then coming back to the cleanliness, Jesus says, Give to the poor the things within and everything will be clean for you. Are you hearing this? The inside affects the outside, not the other way around. Okay, so don't make any mistake. The inside affects the outside. Now, why do I want to emphasize this? Because in American Christianity, we've so personalized and internalized our faith that we act like and talk like we don't, what we do on the outside isn't a result of what's really going on on the inside. But it is, though. And instead of fearing what is revealed, we have good news, by the way. You don't have to fear what's been revealed. We can confess our sin and Jesus will... Forgive us and cleanse us. He's faithful to do that every single time. Jesus tells them, tells us, give everything to the poor and everything will be cleaned. Everything will be clean. Now this ties to their greed and wickedness. They were unjust leaders. They were greedy for power, money, positions, and they neglected and even oppressed those who needed their help. And they did so to gain more. Instead, they should have used their power, resources, positions, money to lift up the poor and needy. They should have been generous, merciful, and loving to others, but they instead lorded it over them, and now come the woes. Let's read the first ones. Verse 42 through 44. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done while neglecting the, uh, without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greeting in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Okay, so for much of my life, I've read the word woe as a harsh rebuke of the Pharisees. And while there is rebuke that's taking place, the word woe is actually a term that comes from grief and lament. It's a lament term. 
Let that sink in for just a second. Jesus' woes to the Pharisees and lawyers here come from a place of grief and lament. What is Jesus grieving and lamenting? It comes with a rebuke because of the wretched things they're doing. Does it change anything for you to understand that Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees and lawyers comes from a place of grief and lament? Does it change anything for you today with people you see as Pharisees and lawyers? The first woe is this. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and ruin herb and neglect justice and the love of God. You ought to have done, uh, you ought to have done, sorry, I miswrote it. You ought to have done one, uh, the first without neglecting the others. In Matthew 23, I want you to listen to this. In Matthew 23, verses 23 and 24, Jesus says something similar in Matthew 23. Similar rebuke, similar woes. Uh, but he goes a little more in depth. Listen to this from Matthew 23, 23 through 24. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guide, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. It is entirely possible these are different conversations. Okay, this is one of the things I think people try to do. It's like, well, he said it here in Matthew, but he says it here in Luke. Jesus' message was pretty simple. It's likely he shared the same thing a lot over and over again in a lot of different contexts. We want to overcomplicate his message. It was a pretty simple message. And if you just need to go like to the Sermon on the Mount, I think Matthew kind of compiles it all together. And that's kind of the hinge message from which everything else seems to flow. The Matthew account gives us a little fuller understanding of what's going on here. And as you'll see, whoa, uh, with each woe, there's a major focus on hypocrisy, which we're actually going to talk more about next week. But the hypocrisy, that term hypocrisy, has to do, it was a stage actor term where you were presenting yourself as someone you weren't, right? You were, you were pretending to be someone that you weren't actually, and it was just for a show. They're pretending to be godly by doing the religious ritual of tithing. This is outside of the cup type righteousness, though. But they neglect the weightier matters of the law of justice, mercy, faithfulness, and the love of God. Now, why does Jesus lay these alongside tithing? I want you to consider that for a second. Why does he talk about tithing? You tithe these things, but you neglect justice, mercy, faithfulness, and the love of God. Why would he tie those two together? <clears throat> and what we need to do is so we need to understand the tithe. And this is going to sound a little bit crazy, okay? So track with me for just a second, because this is going to be uh, really, really uncomfortable for us. But tithing, I believe, is one way we shield our greed to a watching world. I believe tithing is a way that we shield a lack of mercy and justice to a watching world. Now, let me explain that. The tithes in the Old Testament, and when I say tithes, I mean plural on purpose. There was more than one. They were not just about giving money to the synagogue or the temple. It wasn't even just for the Levites and the high priests. Tithes were given as a means to, yes, support the lives of the priests and high priests, but also to provide for the stranger, the widow, stranger would be an immigrant, the stranger, the widow, and the poor. These tithes would help cover costs of feasts for those who could not afford to bring anything or were able to travel. It was focused on taking care of the community. Pharisees and lawyers focused on the letter of the law, but missed the spirit of the law. This is why Jesus addresses their neglect of justice and the love of God. They did their religious duty. They were justified in their own eyes, and they went about their righteous lives. This ties to Jesus telling them to give to the poor, and then everything will be clean. I think what we want to do is bullet point this section. Don't do that. These woes build on each other, <clears throat> and they tie to what Jesus is talking about being clean uh, on the outside and being full of greed and wickedness on the inside. The tithe, they tithe, but they neglect justice and the love of God, which ties the love to the love of neighbor. So justice is going to have to do with even. Jesus says you should have tithed 
meaning he's not condemning tithing. So if you got out of here today going, oh, we don't ever have to tithe, we don't have to give any money, that's not what he's saying. He doesn't condemn what they're doing in tithing. In fact, he encourages it. But they should do so as they act justly and love God and neighbor. Remember last week we talked about the eye being bad. Their eye is bad. It's not singularly and wholly devoted to God, but to themselves. The light within them is darkness. They neglect the poor, the widow, and the stranger and foreign resident, which is partially why the tithe was given to begin with. The love of God is not within them, as is evidenced by their lack of mercy, faithfulness, and generosity. And let me add here that the tithes Jesus mentions were not even required by law. This, too, were additions by the Pharisees and the lawyers. Vegetables, fruits, and animals were, the t- were to be tithed, not herbs and spices. Pharisees maintained that all foodstuffs were to be tithed. So he's addressing how they will go to great lengths to be sure they are following every letter and interpretation of the law while absolutely neglecting the deeper meaning and purpose of the law. Let me ask you a question. What good are mint, ruined herbs to the poor widow and stranger? That's not sus- sustainable for them. That's not vegetables and fruit and meat, is it? Do you imagine giving a poor, hungry person, here, have 10% of my mint? Great, they got fresh breath. Look at you. Jesus chose those specifically. It's good for the, it's good for the Pharisees to give tithe, you know, tithes of mint and herb and everything else. And while these things can be useful, they don't meet the basic needs of human nutrition. So give tithes on those extras. It's not a bad thing. Whatever extras you get in life, you want to tithe on those things, you want to give from those things, be a generous person, absolutely. But don't neglect justice, mercy, faithfulness, and the love of God. That's hypocrisy. I said tithing can be a shield for greed and a shield for a lack of mercy and justice. Let me explain. American Christianity has taught us that we tithe 10% and keep the rest. And I want to submit that this is a heavy burden we have put on people. Some people, at least. For others, it has been a justification for greed. Let me explain. Some cannot afford to give 10% of their income in tithes. It would crush them financially. When tithes were given in the Old Testament, it was by those who had crops and or animals to give a tithe from. They were, not to be the, they were not to have poor among them, by the way. But if one were poor, then the community was to come alongside them and help. But some did not have produce or animals to tithe from. Money was not tithed on in an agrarian society like Israel. They tithed off the land, which was a tithing of what God provided for them. And they tithed off the increase. If someone did not have produce or animals to tithe from, they would benefit from the tithes of those who did. Thus, there were tithes that were for the poor, widow, and stranger. There were also gleaning laws, which allowed them to meet their basic needs. There were at least three tithes given and likely more. This means that more than 10% was given to support and bless the community, not just the priestly office, though not less than that either. So it becomes a heavy burden on the poor and less resourced when we say you're to give 10% to the church. Not to mention there's no New Testament command for this. But that 10% is also a shield for greed, which can also produce self-righteousness. How? The spirit of the law is generosity which is opposite of greed. Following the letter of the law, you can give 10% of your increase to the church and go on living your greedy, selfish life. Generosity knows no percentage. We are to be a generous people that reflects the generosity of our great God and King, and that is far more than just money. Just because you give a lot of money to the church, that does not mean you are generous. You might be generous to the church, 
But only you and God know if that's a facade to present you as righteous and holy while you're full of greed and wickedness on the inside. Just wait till we get to Luke 21 and talk about the widow's offering. (laughs) You want to talk about a story that's been misinterpreted. Let's go to the second woe. Building off the first. Woe to you Pharisees, verse 43. For you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Now, this is probably going to get me in trouble, but hear me out. A modern example of this is most seen among those young and sometimes old ministers jockeying for big-time positions and large public platforms. I've been in full-time ministry since I graduated college in 2002, and I can testify that this is a thing, especially for young men, to position themselves to be noticed by others and promoted to big ministry positions. Now, it looks and sounds godly. And let me pause for a second because I want to be very clear. I'm not saying this from a position of cynicism or sarcasm. I was actually one who sought big ministries, big name, big platform kind of stuff. I remember being in awe of Louis Giglio back in the day and would tell people, I want to be the next Louis Giglio. I don't have that cool of a name. I mean, I remember playing it out going, like Louis Giglio, like Brian Paget, Like it just falls, it's like flat, you know? Louis Giglio, Brian Paget. Okay. So it was kind of DOA, right? Just not going to make it. But I was one who sought, I wanted big. I wanted, I wanted to be, like, my goal was to be like a traveling itinerant speaker. No lie. That's what I said in college. That's what I wanted to be. And when I say it looks and sounds godly, I mean they use lots of spiritual language as a cover for how they got to where they are. Now, this is not true of every well-known minister, mind you. Don't assume the worst about everyone after this. But also don't be naive. You don't know the hearts of these people like Jesus does, nor do I. That doesn't mean it doesn't happen, though. It is often a matter of who you know in getting a big-time ministry going. And usually these begin as big itinerant preaching gigs. So go to the youth camp scene, go to the college ministry scene, go to the large weekly young adult Bible study in the metro area, go to the big youth and college conferences held every year. Again, not all these speakers and musicians there are seeking the best seats and greeting in the marketplace, but they are among them. Getting the best seat in the synagogue meant sitting in the most honored seat. Being greeted in the marketplace wasn't just having people say hi to you. That happened to everybody. It was about being recognized. It was about receiving honor. It was about you know, being identified by your status and your position. Like, you're, you're Brian Paget, Signing books for people and things like that. It's all about being kind of a big deal. And while some who had no desire to become big deals, and you can tell who those people are, they become big, they become well-known. But there's people you can tell, like, they didn't seek this out. Like, they've just kind of, over time, become super well-known. One of the dangers of some of our church models in America are that members of some of these churches have no relationship with their pastor or pastors. They have no idea what kind of person they are outside of what they see and hear publicly. These Pharisees played the game well. They received the honor and prestige they sought. Jesus cries, woe to you Pharisees for this. And this plays off the first. They neglect justice and the love of God. They neglect the poor, the widow, and the stranger. And yet they demand their honor and praise in public. They love the best seats and they love the public praise. But it's all about the outside. Inside they're full of greed and wickedness. They should have used their positions and status among the people to humbly serve and lift them up. Instead, in their self-righteousness, they paraded themselves around seeking the praise and love of men. They wowed the crowds with their holiness, their knowledge, their righteous living, their purity. But it was all a sham, which leads to the next woe. Verse 44, woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves. People walk over them without knowing it. Man, this is a huge gut punch 
for the Pharisees. In the Torah, if you walked over someone's grave, you were considered defiled. It had to be followed by a seven-day purification process. So the graves would be cleaned, whitewashed. You've heard the whitewashing of tombs? That was to make it abundantly clear, this is a grave, don't walk over it. <laughs> so graves would be cleaned, they'd be marked so everyone could see them clearly and avoid walking over them. Jesus says here the Pharisees and lawyers are unmarked graves. And people walk over them without knowing it. Remember the Pharisees' big goal was to be pure and holy. What Jesus is saying is that actually you're the one defiling everybody. Hello. <laughs> what? Man. I mean, talk about becoming what you despise. Becoming what you hate. They are unmarked graves, meaning they are really hidden from everyone. Would they, be received, would they receive the best seats and praise in the marketplace if people really knew who they were, I want you to think for a second about someone you don't know personally, but you follow their preaching, teaching, ministry, etc. If you learned that they were like an unmarked grave, what would you do? That was easy. Let me ask another question. How do you know they aren't an unmarked grave that you walk over without knowing it? Now, I'm not trying to scare you away from these people. I am trying to warn you and myself. Big ministries, big platforms, big names and all that does not mean these people are truly who they claim to be. And you and I might not either. This isn't just about some big time celebrity or well-known ministers. That would be too easy and much less uncomfortable. These Pharisees weren't nationally famous. They were famous in the local markets and the local synagogues. Now, breathe for a second. Don't try to figure out who in Stillwater are the hypocrites in the unmarked graves. But do pause and consider the weight of this. And ask the Lord to expose you whether you are an unmarked grave. Do you love the darkness of not knowing? Or do you desire the light that gives light and drives away what's dark in you? In what ways do you conceal greed and wickedness in and by your actions for others to see? What facade might you be holding up to make sure everyone knows that you're good and righteous while the, behind the facade is greed and wickedness? Now let's keep going. This is an interesting turn here. In verse 45, let's read to verse 40, uh, 52. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with, with one, finger, one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. So that the blood of all prophets, all the prophets, shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation." Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hinder those who are entering. These last three woes are directed at the lawyers. Now, it applied to the Pharisees, too, and the others applied to the lawyers as well. But this one's interesting, because this one lawyer ain't having it. <laughs> He's like, whoa, 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 I'm going to disassociate myself from the Pharisees. Likely, he wasn't one of the Pharisees. Some of the lawyers were, but some weren't. And so he tells Jesus, hey... You insult us while you're insulting them. Uh-uh. Like he ain't having it. And Jesus just goes right in on him. Okay. Woe to you also, lawyers. Like, shoot, why did I speak up? Like, you know those times when you said something, it was like, probably shouldn't have said anything. Now I'm in it. This lawyer's in it now. 
Jesus is like, okay, well, woe to you too, lawyers. Like, shoot. So what is he going to do? Here's the first woe. Jesus says they load people with heavy burdens to carry while not even touching the same burdens themselves. In Matthew 11, 28 through 30, Jesus teaches that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He's speaking of his teaching and his way of life. Jesus is saying that the teachings and religious traditions of the lawyers is a heavy burden on the people. They have added and added to the law so many rules and regulations that the people are crushed under the weight of guilt and shame from keeping them. Hello, look, I grieve thinking about this in our country. There are a number of ways we see this, and I want to focus on a few larger scale ways. So I'm going to go bullet point through these. I got four of them. I only had three, and I added one this morning. One, the Billy Graham rule. This rule has something, was something personal to Billy Graham. Nothing wrong with that, but it has spread to become a new law for Christian men and women. It has done much damage to relationships between men and women in the church and the broader community. Some of the big proponents of it have not even kept it themselves and gone on to guilty, adulterous relationships, some using and abusing their power to do so. The Billy Graham rule has been the most burdensome for women. They have had to bear the weight of making sure men don't lust, don't rape, don't get tempted, and so on. In so doing, they've often been relegated to lesser status in the church and not invited into studies and ministries to be developed and flourish for fear that they might hinder a man or make a man do something he shouldn't do. It is a heavy burden that has crushed so many and has served to create fractured male-female relationships rather than flourishing ones. The second one I want to address, quiet times. Now a minute. Now before you get heated, hear me out. We have put a burden on people to have a daily quiet time. Now spending time daily in the Bible and prayer is good and good for us. But we are not commanded to have some set apart time in the Bible and prayer every single day, nor are we measured by how many and how often we have them. This is a tricky one because we should absolutely spend time in prayer and Bible reading and study. But it is extra biblical to say that you are to, and that you're disobedient to Jesus if you're not having a daily quiet time. And you're not guilty if it's not the first thing you do in the morning. I mean, for years, I felt guilty and weighed down by this personally. I'm one of those who comes alive at night. That's when I'm at my best. Some of my best times of prayer and Bible study and conversation have occurred late at night. I mean, like late at night. I felt guilty for years I wasn't giving God my best and my first in the morning. Everyone does realize that when Jesus is speaking here, the Old Testament is the only Bible they have, and not everyone had access to it. Meaning communal learning, they didn't have personal quiet times. Communal learning was far more the way they received the Word of God. Or they meditated on the Word of God, and that's how they recalled Scripture on their own. They would do those things, but a lot of it was communal as well. But we've highly individualized the quiet time business and since the printing press and Bible translations, we have access to the word of God every day. So yes, enjoy the scriptures, study them, pray through them, pray often, pray without ceasing, the Bible says, but do not carry this burden around your necks anymore that you're somehow on God's bad side if you don't have a set aside daily quiet time every single day. Third, family and singleness. This would be this is going to be my last one. It's not. This may seem odd, but it applies here extremely well. Now, this is a broad category. The others were a little more specific. What I mean is this, that there are many heavy burdens in this category, which I won't be able to cover all of them. 
We've associated, listen, we've associated Christian maturity with marriage and family. We've associated godliness with husbands and fathers working and moms staying home with kids. We've created heavy burdens around the schooling of children. We've placed a burden on single men and women regarding marriage. We have put a heavy burden on single parents and children. We've put a heavy burden on those suffering abuse at the hands of a spouse or a parent by teaching them that it's God's will that they stay and endure it for Jesus' sake. Do you see what I mean by this category has a lot in it? We have allowed personal convictions to become laws for marriages, families, singleness, etc. But let me focus on singleness and single parents here for a second. We've placed burdens on them that the situation they find themselves in is because of some sin or flaw in their lives. Again, I don't have time to dig too deep here, but the short of it is that many of singles and single parents feel guilt and shame for being single and single parents. Why? Because, and I believe this is due to a form of prosperity teaching that we find acceptable here in the West, we've taught that God blesses those who do what's right. And what is upheld as the model of Christian health and success in the church? The nuclear family. Mom, dad, children, attending church, Bible study, etc., etc. But church is family. And instead of people feeling at home and a part of a family within the church, they often feel like a burden that has to be carried around and that they're in the way. The one I've added this morning... I feel like it's extremely important in light of some things that happened this week, in fact, but it's happened multiple times, and it's voting. I was born and raised in Republican conservative Christianity, so much of what I'm saying here ties to that camp. But make no mistake, it applies across the boards to all, board to all camps. We have placed a burden on people in regard to who they vote for and how they vote, and even if they should or should not vote. I'm not going to spend long on this and want to say very clearly that you are free in Jesus to vote your conscience. You are not unfaithful, nor is your salvation in question if you don't vote the right way. And you are free to not vote at all. No matter who you vote for or don't vote for, my only plea is do not lose your prophetic voice. Do not lose your integrity. Do not lose your Christian witness by excusing, ignoring, or covering up evil, sinful behavior, policies, and practices of the party or person you did vote for. And if you didn't vote, that doesn't mean you don't have a say. Why? Because we belong to Christ and his kingdom first, not to any party or country. Woe to us. We are like the lawyers and the Pharisees. And this has been passed down to us through seminaries and theologians and pastors, but we've passed it down too. Jesus' teaching is easy and his way is light meaning his teaching and his way of life are not burdensome. They don't crush us. They change us. They revive us. They renew us. You can breathe easy with Jesus and not feel like you have this giant elephant sitting on your chest all the time. This is really good news. The second woe to the lawyers is a big one. The woe is about building tombs to their prophets. Now, Jesus says here that they build these elaborate tombs as evidence that they are witnesses and give consent to their forefathers. That seems odd to us, but let me tell you a story about Jacqueline Smith. She lived in the Lorraine Motel where Martin Luther King Jr. was murdered. In March 1988, everyone living in the motel was evicted because they were going to turn it into the National Civil Rights Museum. She was the last to go. In fact, they had to have four police officers pry open the door and take her out screaming and crying, and she refused to go on the grounds of protesting. Once removed, she set up a blue tarp across the street and is still there to this day. For 30 plus years, she continues to live homeless under a blue tarp to protest. What has she been protesting? Well, they were turning Lorraine to the National Civil Rights Museum. It's quite impressive. If you've never been, you should go sometime. 
<clears throat> but because she believes, she's not upset about that. What she was upset about is that they, what she saw is they were memorializing the violent death of MLK rather than his actual words and work. This is what she said in a BBC article. We've seen the glorification of death and negativity with the multi-million dollar purchase of the rooming house where Dr. King was shot. We've seen gruesome artifacts purchased and displayed, and we've seen the Lorraine Motel host countless black-tie dinners where limousines and ball gowns grace the streets. But what we've seen most in this is the complete disconnect between Dr. King's dreams and aspirations and what the Lorraine actually offers today. The museum has caused devastation to a community which has been systematically destroyed or dismantled, uprooted, and relocated against their will. Signs around her stall describe the museum as a monument to injustice which desecrates the memory of Martin Luther King Jr. People need a place to pay their respects to Dr. King, she says, but it would be better if they could see his work in action. Support for the homeless and disadvantaged, health care and help for the old and infirm. These are the issues that matter to Dr. King and they still matter today. The area today around the Lorraine Motel has been gentrified, which she said in 1988 was likely to happen. It did. The reason MLK was in Memphis when he got shot was to walk and work for justice on behalf of the poor sanitation workers who were working in horrific and unjust conditions. The Lorraine Motel was in a very poor, rundown part of town where these people lived. Jacqueline desires to see the Lorraine turned into a place to support and educate the poor of the community. She wants to see the Lorraine turned into something that carries on the actual work of MLK and not a memorial to his death. She said the danger of turning the Lorraine into a museum would actually serve to forget what MLK Jr. actually fought for. And she's largely been right 50 plus years later. We have forgotten. Today, many white Christians, which by the way, 50 years ago, he was by Poles, was more hated than the president of Russia by white Christians. And yet every January on MLK Day, white Christians love to quote his acceptable words, never dealing with what he actually said or fought for. Why am I sharing this? Because this is what Jesus is addressing here. They decorate the tombs and pretend they would never do what their forefathers did, but they're just like them. They don't listen to Jesus and ultimately take part in having killed him. Had they gone back and listened to the prophets their fathers killed, they would not be living the lives they were living. They would have become a humble, just, merciful, and loving people. And Jesus says the blood of Abel all the way to Zechariah. Zechariah died in, in Chronicles, which in the Hebrew Bible, Second Chronicles is the last book. So Jesus is saying from beginning to end, all those have been murdered. This generation will be held to account. Now, I know we don't like this, but over and over again, the Bible, <clears throat> in the Bible, the people of God are held to account for the sins of their forefathers. These lawyers are, in a sense, mythologizing the past, which gives cover for them to ignore their connection to the sinfulness of their forefathers, sins they've not repented of, even though they didn't actually kill the prophets themselves. Jesus has come to fulfill what the prophets they murdered said he would do. He will bear the judgment on himself, but because they reject Jesus, they're responsible for their sins and the sins of their fathers. Sadly, people have used these texts to be anti-Semitic. Folks, it was Jews and Gentiles that crucified Jesus. But this is bigger. Hear this. No one took Jesus' life. He laid it down of his own accord. Yes, there was an unjust trials and trials. He was mistreated, abused, tortured, murdered as an innocent man. But all this he endured to become a curse for us so that we could become the righteousness of God by faith in Christ. So if you hear people saying it's the Jews' fault Jesus died, shut that junk down. Jesus died for Jews and Gentiles alike, and he gave himself freely. No one took it. The final woe from Jesus here is this. Woe to you lawyers, verse 52, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves 
and hinder others who are entering. In Matthew 16, Jesus talks about the keys of the kingdom. Luke here talks about the keys of knowledge, and he speaks to entering and not entering. The kingdom of God is what's in view here. So how did they take away the keys of knowledge? They did so through their interpretations, their religious traditions, and added on laws. They have obscured the law of God from people. They do not enter themselves, which is huge in its own right, but Jesus says they're preventing or hindering others from entering. They were keeping people locked out of the kingdom. Paul hits on this a lot, I believe, in his letters, especially in Galatians. You enter God's kingdom by faith alone in Christ Jesus alone, not by works of the law, not by good deeds and sincerity, but these lawyers were hindering the people from the keys of knowledge by teaching them an anti-gospel of the kingdom. Remember, Jesus is saying all this from a place of grief and lament. In fact, in the Matthew account that's similar to this, right after this, it records Jesus' lament over Jerusalem, where he says, I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you refuse. These are Jesus' people. They are Jewish. He was Jewish. And he is grieved and angered, but not hateful and vengeful. These lawyers have led people astray. They've placed heavy burdens on them and locked them out of the kingdom with their false religion. They use the Old Testament scriptures as a cover and protection for their religion too. Yes, this happens today. Surely we all know this. But are we grieved and lamentable about it? Do we carry a righteous anger coupled with grief and lament? Or are we just angry and ready to go scorched earth on folks? Like, I'll be honest. I am far more scorched earth than like Jesus most days. I'm like, let's burn Babylon down. (laughs) There's a song with that. Kids know it. They sing it with me. When you realize you've been lied to or led astray, it induces real anger. When you witness people who have been influential in your life or in the lives of those who have influenced you, acting opposite of what they taught and hammered in you for years, yeah, you get angry. When you see family members being taken by political idolatry, QAnon conspiracy theories, and peddling in lies and hysteria, you get angry. Often more so at those doing it, uh, they were doing the deceiving, especially pastors and professors and other Christian leaders. But scorched earth places us in the camp of those receiving the woes. We become what we despise. We become self-righteous. We become the deceivers. We become the manipulators and spiritual abusers. We could be locking people out of the kingdom of God too. And we do lock people out of the kingdom of God, just as the Pharisees and lawyers were doing with our neglect of the poor, the immigrant, the widow, the minority, etc. Have we made it too difficult for these people to enter the kingdom of God? Have our church models and our extra-biblical teaching and rules and regulations locked people out? I believe it is extremely likely. And I really think we need to sit with this passage a while and ask the Lord to expose the Pharisee and lawyer within us and repent. For all the many missions and ministries our churches engage in, why are the poor and marginalized still missing so much from our congregations? You know how many trips have been taken down to Mexico? That place should look like heaven. Why are they missing here at Redeemer? Why are they missing in your own relationships? God have mercy on us. 
As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. They are not happy. <laughs> they double down now in their efforts to catch Jesus breaking a law or teaching something false. They lie in wait for him. And guess what? This still happens today too. Look, I've been on Twitter long enough to see Christian men and women on the left and right. I hate those terms, but that's what I got. Just waiting for someone on the other side to say something they can pounce on. I've been guilty of this myself. I know it. I'm not proud of it, and I want to be aware of it and, and change and stop being like that. I want to be aware of the different teachings going on, sure. But I don't need to lie and wait to catch someone doing or saying something wrong. I know I'm not alone, and I know this is not all social media problem. This isn't even social media, and they're, they're doing it. Like, this is kind of how people church shop today, right? They wouldn't say this, but essentially they go along enough to see if there's something they don't like or oppose. They're just kind of lying in wait, waiting for you to say something wrong. You know, we're trying to find out, are, is, this a, is this a woke liberal or a MAGA Christian nationalist? We wait for certain phrases or words and concepts, and bam, we got them. I know who they are now. I know who you are. I see you. I see you. Ah, okay. We're more like Pharisees and lawyers than we dare admit. And some are exactly like them, meaning they're missing Jesus completely, even while promoting him. Just as the Pharisees and lawyers use the scriptures and Jewish faith as a cover for their false religion, so too do people today use Christianity for their false religion. I want to close by reading Galatians 2 and 3. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read parts here. I want to read them over us and I want to pray. And my hope is that you'll have ears to hear the good news. If Jesus' light is shining on you and you're getting uncomfortable with what's being exposed or been exposed in you, then hear this good news this morning from Galatians 2. I'll read 2, 15 through 21 and 3, 10 through 14. Galatians 2, 15. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Listen to Galatians 3, 10 through 14, and I'm going to pray. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But, what, but the law is not fa of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written... Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your kindness and your goodness to us. Lord, we are a sinful and wretched people. That woe, I think of the woe of Isaiah. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people who are unclean. Jesus, you cried woe to these Pharisees and lawyers, 
not to attack them, not to go after them and put them in their place and own them and show them who the boss was, but out of lament and out of a righteous anger, you cried, woe to you Pharisees, woe to you lawyers. You are hypocrites. You are two-faced, double-minded hypocrites. You are self-righteous, self-justified hypocrites. And you are burdening people and you are weighing them down and you bear those weights yourself, but you mostly throw them off on other people. And God, forgive us of how we've been like the Pharisees and the lawyers. Father, I pray for those in this room today that don't even feel like they know you anymore because they've been so weighed down and with guilt and shame because they couldn't attain to what we've presented as mature Christianity in America and they keep wrestling with doubt and fear and guilt and shame because they can't keep up with what it means to be Christian when your yoke is easy and your burden is light. Have mercy on them this morning. Let them see Jesus this morning rightly and not through the lens of Pharisaic Christian nonsense that we keep peddling in this country. And for those of us that are upholding these things, it's not wrong to have convictions. It's not wrong to live according to convictions. But when we take our convictions or we take our interpretations, we begin to lord them over other people, demanding that if you don't vote this way, if you don't live this way, if you don't have the Billy Graham rule, if you don't have this in your daily life, if you're not married with kids, if you're not all these other things, then you're an unfaithful Christian or you're not a mature Christian or you're not a healthy enough Christian or whatever else. And we would repent of that nonsense, God. Woe to us. God, we want so quickly to align ourselves with the poor and the widow and the marginalized. But if we look around, we far more represent the, the Pharisees and the lawyers. Have mercy on us, oh God, and change us. Change our personal relationships. Change our church. Let the churches of this country repent and come forward in their sin and their shame and cry out to God for mercy like the tax collector, not like the Pharisee who beats his chest and says, oh God, thank you that I'm not like the LGBTQ. Thank you, God, that I'm not like the poor minorities or the poor people or the immigrants. Dear God, thank you that I am white and wealthy and everything else. We are Pharisees if we do that, God. Please have mercy on us and change us. That the light of Christ would shine in the darkness again. And you would draw people to yourself. In Jesus' name, I plead with you, God. Amen.